0: Dr Lise Altshuler will return to Australia to deliver her must-see seminar, Managing the Drivers of Cancer. The series will run in Australian capital cities from the 13th to the 24th of November, 2017. You can learn more about Lise's comprehensive prevention and management strategies by attending this vital seminar. For more information, please go to biocuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today, again, is my dear friend, Lise Alshler. She's a naturopathic doctor with board certification in naturopathic oncology who's been practicing since 1994. She maintains a naturopathic oncology practice out of naturopathic specialists, a practice in Scottsdale, Arizona. I should say a beautiful place called Scottsdale, Arizona. Mm-hmm. Lise works as an independent consultant in the area of practitioner and consumer health education. She is current president of the Oncology Association of Naturopathic Physicians, that's OncAMP. She's the executive director of TAP Integrative, a non-profit educational resource for integrative practitioners, which is brilliant and seminal and unique. Lise is the co-author, along with Carolyn Gazella, of The Definitive Guide to Cancer and The Definitive Guide to Thriving After Cancer, texts which any practitioner should read regarding the evidence and safety of natural medicines in cancer care. Dr. Alshla co-created iThrivePlan.com and co-hosts a radio show, 5 to Thrive Live, on the Cancer Support Network, about living more healthfully in the face of cancer. Welcome back to FX Medicine, Lise. How are you?
1: I'm really quite good today, actually, and thanks for having me back. Always a pleasure.
0: It is always my pleasure, Lee. I'm so happy to speak to you again. Can't wait for you to come out to Australia again later on in this year. I know.
1: I'm looking forward to that a oh,
0: lot. Oh yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: now, now we're going to talk. Uh, uh, we're going to talk about the sort of flip side, if you like, today. We're we're not going to talk about nice positive things. We're going to talk about dangers potential dangers Mm -hmm. and look at the reality of these dangers and appropriate use. The whole point is for safe use. So we're going to be talking about the dangers of supplementation in cancer. So, Lise, let's start off. What first are the theoretical fears of oncologists with the use of natural supplements during oncological care? And are these fears real?
1: You know, I think that... uh Like humans have a tendency to do, a lot of oncologists put supplements, all of them into one box and it's, it's, this box is full of stuff they don't know very much about and they're afraid that the stuff in there is going to interact with their therapies. So I think the fears are really based on could any of those supplements potentially make my therapies less effective? That's really their primary concern. Sometimes I hear from oncologists that they're also concerned about potential, you know, increase in side effects from their therapies. But mostly it's really a concern about interfering with their chemotherapy. And certainly radiation oncologists are very concerned about any supplement, almost as if they all are antioxidants. Yeah, yeah. And antioxidants, they feel, you know, interrupt radiation. So I think that's really the, the kind of the main uh, fear. Now, are those fears justified? I think sometimes they are. There are definitely some supplements that are, I would say, either uh, absolutely or relatively contraindicated with certain chemotherapeutics or certain you know types of radiation therapy. But of course, that doesn't hold true for all supplements. So I mm. think really the answer is in a more sophisticated approach to all of
2: this.
0: Yeah. Um, I remember reading some research by Keith Block, which was basically a, a, a review of other research regarding antioxidants during chemotherapy. And it was overwhelmingly positive, not negative at all. But I think the interesting thing is, why do oncologists feel that a supplement can interfere with radiation when there is no basis for giving these things after, say, a a leak from fukushima or chernobyl you know there is no interference with that with a, a, a bad radiation let's say an ionizing radiation so how do they think that an, an antioxidant would protect against this acute dosing it's really funny it's really a sort of a dichotomy of thought about the action of radiation ionizing radiation
1: yeah, you know, well I think that it it really goes to the fact that radiation is clearly a a therapy that's based on introducing oxidative stress. Yes. And introducing it in a very concentrated way at the tissue. So therefore, just the word antioxidant is opposed to the intended action of the Radiation. That's right. So, one would then logically assume that a supplement with antioxidant capabilities or the ability to quench free radicals, which are these, you know, charged oxygen particles that radiation is introducing. So, one would, you know, I think logically say, well, then if somebody takes something that's going to quench these oxidants, that's going to interfere with the intended effect or the cell damage of radiation. The reality is that. Uh, kind of surprisingly, actually, that doesn't seem to hold out in clinical trials. The um, There was one big clinical trial that made the rounds in the early 2000s, which looked at vitamin E supplementation during radiation therapy in people with head and neck cancer. And in fact, the first report that went out showed that when these people were followed for six years out, there was an increased risk of mortality in the people who had been supplemented with vitamin E even though during the radiation they had better toleration of the treatment. So this was seen as a big, I mean, it made the circuit like nothing I've ever seen and really fueled the fire of, okay, C, antioxidants are bad during radiation. Now, interestingly, in a subsequent follow-up analysis by the same study authors, they actually found that a subgroup within that group of patients namely smokers accounted for 100% of that increased mortality risk yeah. and they went on to say that there was some kind of specific interaction that was happening between the vitamin E the smoking and the radiation and uh, it you know might have been more the smoking than the vitamin E but nonetheless there was that kind of emerged as the main caution of course that never made the news yeah no um, and really that's study has been used to kind of fuel this ongoing thought process. But, you know, so that's an example. I I myself, if somebody smokes, do not recommend that they take vitamin E if they're getting radiation therapy. Um, and in general, I'm just not willing to kind of go to, go to bat for vitamin E during radiation, even in the non-smoker, because I don't think it's going to help enough yeah. to kind of raise the ire of the Radiation oncologists, but other uh, so-called antioxidants, vitamin C, for example, or CoQ10, even up in doses up to you know 300 milligrams, have failed to to demonstrate any interference effect. Mm. And so you know maybe it's that the radiation is very short lived, like it's the way it's introduced. Most of it's gone from the body very quickly, which is why people have to get it every day. And an antioxidant, when we take it orally, it's you know, relatively small amount that gets circulated ultimately throughout the body, and probably not enough in any, you know, in a concentration manner to do much of anything at the site of radiation. But, uh, you know, I, I think radiation is an area that I've just found most radiation oncologists are very antioxidant adverse. And I'd rather not triangulate my patients in that. So I just don't really work too hard to give people straight out antioxidants and get a little sneaky with (laughs) using botanicals that really do have antioxidant capability but are not considered as such. Shh,
0: don't tell them. (laughs) So um, (laughs) the the conceptual sort of framework that I have an issue with is our term. Antioxidants is polar. It only Mm -hmm. does one thing, whereas with every antioxidant. There is a a redoxidant or a redox pair. Um, So, you Mm -hmm. know, vitamin C, CoQ10. So you've got ubiquinone, ubiquinol. In between, you've got semiquinone. Um, The same goes for lipoic acid. You've got lipoic acid and the more active, if you like, or intracellular part, um, dihydrolipoic acid or dihydrolipoate. That rings true for vitamin E, for uh, vitamin C, for lipoic, for CoQ10, for all of these antioxidants that we term as that. Are they really Mm -hmm. an an antioxidant or are they this redox pair that we're actually helping to stimulate or, you know, indeed stimulate, as I said, the um, uh, like mitochondrial activity?
1: Yep, I think that's exactly, I agree with that 100%. And then if we think about it from the perspective of, you know, a lot of, let's say, the, the, the botanical anti, so-called antioxidants actually work as oxidants initially. So they introduce or they're met by the cell membrane as an oxidant. And they induce then a cellular response that's, depending on the various, data of the cell is either an S-kappa B dependent or a Nrf2 dependent, and that's going to kind of generate the overall cellular response. But in reality, that original compound, which we called an antioxidant, is really working as an oxidant. So I think there's so much more complexity to this from a biochemical perspective that Yeah, I agree. Oversimplifying the issue, I think,
0: is really not helpful. Yeah. Of course, the other issue is oral dosing versus intravenous dosing. And we know that the vast difference of actions of vitamin C, for instance, given orally versus intravenously, um, and the doses that you can achieve with such. From a conceptual point of view, what are the real dangers of supplements during medical oncological therapy?
1: You know, I think that... um, There are some things that need to be considered, and I certainly evaluate this on an ongoing basis. And I think the first thing to consider are cytochrome P450 detoxification enzyme potential interactions. So there are many chemotherapeutics that get metabolized by cytochrome 3A or 2C9 or whatever the case might be. And whether that enzyme is up or down regulated could affect the metabolism of the chemo. Sometimes the chemo is metabolized into inactives and sometimes it's metabolized into actives. So that's an important piece of information. And uh, so it's important to evaluate for that. Now, we don't really know a lot about the impact of the herbs on those enzymes in the Petri dish when we study this. There are invariably a lot of herbs, most, maybe even all herbs affect these cytochrome enzymes. But in most I would say nine times out of 10, when you actually bring that in vitro data into a human pharmacokinetic study, you fail to see a clinically significant effect of those herbs on the enzymes. And that makes sense because herbs particularly will get broken down by intestinal bacteria and conjugated. So by the time they get to the liver, they're kind of a different molecule. Uh, But that being said, you know, I think there are some examples like Hypericum perforatum or St. John's Wort is a good example of an herb that does have a really strong affinity for the 3A enzyme, and uh, should not be used with certain chemotherapeutics like irinotecan. It inhibits the efficacy of irinotecan. That's been clearly documented in humans. Um, there are other, uh, you know, enzymes like um, or other herbs like curcumin from turmeric, which has been shown in vitro to have uh, the ability to inhibit 3A, uh, 3A or 3A4, 2C9, and those are drugs which you would think would have impacts on chemotherapeutics and other drugs, but in fact, in uh, pharmacokinetic studies with human volunteers, just using straight up curcuminoid powder, there's really no inhibition or no clinically significant effect at doses up to four grams of curcuminoids. So. Yeah. I think we have to kind of take all this with a grain of salt, too, or at least do our investigation. And last thing I'll say about this is if uh, people are concerned about it, nonetheless, I think the thing to do is to look up the half-life, the terminal half-life of the chemotherapy, and that's readily available online. Yep. And let's say we're looking at a taxine, which is about 11-hour half-life. We multiply that by three generally to get kind of a good by that time, most of that taxing is going to have gone through its metabolism yep. and then just avoid anything that could potentially interfere with it during that period of time, and then you 're kind of avoiding potential interactions
2: yeah yeah,
1: that's so kind of a good rule of thumb
0: because I, I, I don 't know as much as you about half lives I basically go for half lives and I go right <laughs> or on the side of caution, but um, as you say, you know I think every natural health practitioner needs to really study these half lives and really be aware of them. And that's indeed something that you include in your book.
1: And I think, of, you know, and, and, that, and I would characterize that approach as a very uh, safe, sort of conservatively solid approach. If there's something that you really want somebody to have within that window of time, then go and see if there's any human data on potential interactions. And sometimes you'll find data that actually negates the interaction. So then you have more flexibility or freedom. To use things and that can be important, like with curcumin. Since we were talking about that, yep. there is a, there are a slew of studies showing that curcumin is a synergist or a, it improves the efficacy of things like carboplatin and cisplatin. So, you would want to use that at the same time somebody's getting those drugs. Mm-hmm. So, it's good to know that you're not going to interfere with, with the chemotherapy. In fact, you're going to enhance its efficacy.
0: Yeah, that's right. 5FU as well, right? In colorectal cancer. Mm-hmm. So um,
1: yep,
0: that is you. Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned curcumin because I remember looking into curcumin with regards to cyclophosphamide and there was one study I read where it was talking, it was an in vitro study and it had an issue with cyclophosphamide with curcumin. Mm-hmm. But there was a trial yep. done in dogs, I think, which showed a benefit. So, where are we at yep. with cyclophosphamide and curcumin? Do you err on the side of caution to say, "Look, that's dogs, and that's great, but we're humans." So, at the moment, we just don't know. So, you're <laughs> waiting, or how do you navigate that one?
1: Yeah, you, you would bring that that one up, you know, because <laughs> so far I'm pretty I'm comfortable with it with the platin's. There's uh, it was a you know rat study, but, but um, seemed to be didn't affect dose taxol at all. So that's a taxing chemotherapy. So pretty much you know, comfortable with a lot, Cy- cytoxin or cyclophosphamide is one that, the, da- the jury's still out on that, I would say, there's you know, this odd um, uh, overlap of activity in the cell that because of a-, a pathway called the JNK pathway that curcumin can inhibit, which is normally a good thing and p- part of it's anti-cancer action, that pathway needs to be intact for cyclophosphamide to work it- at its best. So, it's possible that there could be a you know a decrease in efficacy.
2: Yep. so
1: because I'm not sure yet, and the data isn't really out there, that's one that you know maybe I'd be a little bit more cautious with. Now, having said that, um, in certain people who have a lot of inflammation and their side effect or the possibility of side effects from chemo is, you know, inflammatory-based side effects is really high to the point that they're afraid to get the chemo and or they might not be able to tolerate the chemo, then I think we have to do kind of a, a evaluation of risk versus benefit. And in those cases, I generally would tend to consider using curcumin, Yeah. even with the cyclophosphamide regimen.
0: But do you wait a day or two after the dose?
1: Yeah, I think that would be cytoxin, yeah. um, best.
0: Cytoxin's got a quicker half-life, hasn't it?
1: Uh, yes. I don't remember what it is off the
0: top of my head, but yeah. Yeah. I thought no. it was ours. Yeah. Um, in those people where you're cautious about, uh, a deleterious interaction with cytoxin, would you say, look, let's, let's fall back to the secondary state, which, which would be food sources. So do you then say, you know, do you like curries, make it with some curcumin? Do you then use that as a sort of possible way of at least getting some curcumin, some dietary sources in?
1: I mean, yeah, I suppose that would be one way to address it. I think uh, the other way would be just to avoid the, the, half, the terminal half-life or the half-life times three time period. Yeah. And then I'm fine using it because, you know, that, at that point, that cytoxin has really done its thing yeah. for the most part.
0: So talking about foods, are there foods which can be definitely dangerous?
1: I... <laughs> I mean, I suppose there are some, you know, any food can be a poison in the right dose, right? But, um, you know, so I'm not quite sure how to answer that. So broadly, I I think I would say that, um, you know, unlike some of the radiation oncologists who don't want their patients eating any vegetables because of the antioxidants in the food, um, I, I just don't find there to be very many contraindicated foods. I mean grapefruit probably is one that I would have to put in there because uh, that definitely has a very strong impact on cytochrome enzymes. So I think you run the risk of altering the you know, the metabolism of chemotherapeutics.
0: Yeah. Uh the, the funny thing about grapefruit was that if you get an oncologist that just wants to use their oncological regimen as dictated by the guidelines, then grapefruit juice is out. But I thought it was really interesting that there was some, there was a couple of stories um, from a trial and the trial said, well, hang on, if we can actually use grapefruit juice therapeutically and you measure what's happening with the chemotherapy. So, you know, take some action on your part. If that's the case, we can actually have a cost saving. And I think it was something like they only had to give a third of, um, sirolimus. So they can actually have a cost saving, benefit from the healthcare Mm -hmm. dollar and the patient gets the same action of the chemotherapeutic drug by the grapefruit inhibiting how the drug is uh, metabolized out of the body and so Mm -hmm. therefore holds onto it in a greater way.
1: Yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of
0: sense. (laughs) Yeah. I can't see many people, many oncologists doing it, but Mm -hmm. where I was basically thinking about the food issues was... um have this recall of a difference in patients' benefit from chemotherapy if they'd had a meal versus if they hadn't had a meal while they were receiving mm. the dose of chemo. So, how real is this? What what happens there? What what do you recommend for your patients?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd say, I, this is probably, I'm guessing, related to the the sort of newer work and which is currently being studied in a number of clinical trials on fasting. Mm. For a period of usually at least a day before chemotherapy, the day of chemotherapy, and then sometimes even for a half to a full day after chemotherapy, right. and really quite That'd low caloric intake, like 600 kilocalories or less um, for water fast. And the idea is that with that uh, fasting period, there's obviously a huge uh, drop in nutrients coming in. So normally that one of the impacts of that on a cellular basis is cells kind of pause in their cell division, so they stop, you know, doing proliferating and stop kind of their activity declines as the, they they hunker down because they're waiting for the next influx of yep. nutrients. Yeah. So that would be healthy cells, which means those cells are going to take up less of the chemotherapeutics. so it has sort of a protective effect on healthy tissues. Now malignant cells, on the other hand, don't have those breaks in place. So they can't hunker down and wait it out. So they keep on dividing. So they remain sensitive to the chemo. So it's meant to kind of expose that differential effect of fasting. And uh, Walter Longo has been doing a lot of work around this and, um, down from other mechanisms related to insulin growth factor one and various, you know, impacts that has on cellular metabolism. But from a clinical perspective, you know, it is a therapy that I try with some people. Not everybody can tolerate fasting, so yeah. constitutionally, I think it's only appropriate for some people. But for people who can really manage the fasting, um, it can reduce their uh, adverse toleration, particularly digestive tract issues. So people who had a lot of nausea and vomiting and diarrhea, sometimes, uh, the fasting for just that two and a half day period really makes a difference. Um, so yeah, I think in that sense, food can be used therapeutically.
0: Yeah. So can I ask about this then? So, When, you know how people have their dose of chemo and while they're sitting there, unless they're not tolerating um, their chemo very well and so they're feeling really poisoned and really sick, most people, they sort of have this, you know, half day to a day of grace and then they feel like rubbish for the rest of the week. I guess my concern is if somebody is fasting around the dose of chemo where they could get nutrients where they're feeling okay and then afterwards are going to feel rubbish where they're not going to want to eat anyway, you're saying that this work by Walter Longo has actually shown that it benefits them.
1: Yeah, so that they don't feel as bad later after they're you know, they feel generally okay that first day because they have, they're have full of steroids and um, as those wear off and, and usually antiemetics that have been delivered intravenously and as those drugs wear off, their side effects start to emerge. But yeah. by managing some of the kind of the damage during the infusion, when those drugs wear off, there's less symptoms to show up, right. basically, Gotcha. at that time. Uh, but, uh, you know, and of course, I think kind of in getting to or hinting at another issue, which is important, and that's weight management. For some people, you know, they, with any degree of fasting, will lose weight and at an inappropriate time. So that needs to be monitored in the studies so far on fasting during chemo. Weight loss is not really showing up to be an issue for people, they kind of make up the difference calorically ah. between chemotherapy cycles.
0: Right. Now, going on, I guess, with regards to our food or what's in food, and that's glutamine. And it's recently sort of hit mm-hmm. the headlines because some researchers have been tricking cancer cells by using glutamine and the, the cancer cells like glutamine. What the message that got out, though, was don't take glutamine in any form, way, shape or form. Uh, because it's going to feed the cancer cells, What's the real issue here? because right. i I think there's a double thing here.
1: Yeah, so I mean this is, this is actually rather complex biochemistry, but um, so glutamine is a preferred fuel by many cells throughout the body, like glucose. And uh, we, as you know humans, whatever beings make our factor glutamine factories. So we're making a lot of glutamine all the time and uh it's, it's known that malignant cells when they get some malignant cells can get to a a place where their the way they make energy is is altered for various reasons and they don't metabolize glucose very effectively so they need a lot of it because they're not getting as much energy out of it and they also start to rely on these secondary fuel sources in to a greater degree including glutamine right So with that understanding, that's kind of led to this uh, clinical, I would characterize a clinical jump to say that, okay, well, if we deprive the body of glutamine from external sources, then we can sort of starve the cancer cells. But The reality is that I I question whether that has a lot of clinical practicality. Number one, um, most glutamine that those cancer cells are using is made within our body so it doesn't really matter if we're restricting it externally or exogenously. Number two, most of the glutamine that we take, even in high doses, like 10, 15 gram doses, most of that is going to be taken up by the enterocytes in the intestines and used there. So even then, you're getting very little circulating throughout the body. Um, And I'm just not sure that it really has a big impact on malignant growth over time. Now, having said that, it still makes sense to me just logically that you don't want to make it easier for the cancer to get glutamine so you know long term glutamine supplementation at high doses ongoingly in somebody who has active cancer is probably not really a well thought out therapy but for short term indications like for example um when people are getting taxane chemotherapy paclitaxel or docetaxel You know, there's a couple of clinical studies that very clearly show that high dose, 30 grams of glutamine for four days, Mm -hmm. starting the day of the chemotherapy infusion, will minimize the risk of nerve damage from that taxane significantly, both the severity and the frequency of that nerve damage. So do I have hesitations about doing that? Absolutely not. You know, I think that even at that dose, um, I'm not going to fuel that tumor growth really any to any significant level plus I'm going to mitigate a major toxicity that could have implications for that person long term and um, and you know I think that's kind of important yeah. um, and you know so and I think that you know, a lot of the new studies that are coming out are really they're looking at doing a couple things like there's uh, one I know there's a they're looking at trying to block the pathway of glutamine utilization with a particular drug so it's it doesn't really have anything to do with the sources of glutamine. It has to do with finding a drug that blocks that pathway. That's yeah. a really different thing yeah. than stopping glutamine. So, you know, I, I think this is controversial, and I think it's um, unfortunately been uh, sort of over The effect of the, this biochemistry has been overgeneralized yeah. in a clinical context.
0: What about instances where the timing of giving a nutrient can have different effects? For instance, I think there's stuff on carnitine. Is that right?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So carnitine is an interesting one. Actually, there's lots of issues with carnitine. So first of all, it you know really works great for people getting platinum chemotherapies in terms of helping to minimise fatigue. Also for radiation, really a nice synergist. Um, and there's another chemotherapy that causes uh, nerve damage, which, and fatigue, which is taxing. So there's some thought that maybe carnitine would help reduce nerve damage, because that's one of the things it does with the platin chemotherapies. But in fact, uh, when this was looked at, actually, carnitine makes that neuropathy worse mm-hmm. in, uh, in you know, people receiving, receiving the the uh, taxane drugs, so it's kind of considered a contraindication now yeah. for people on taxane chemotherapy. Um, also, the dose is really important. You know, it seems like there is kind of a minimum of at least two grams, preferably four grams to really see an effect. So I think sometimes, you know, we talk about nutrients as if it doesn't matter what dose, but dose is really important.
2: Oh,
0: absolutely.
1: And, you know, its effect
0: I recall talking to Janet Schloss, Dr. Janet Schloss, I should say now, PhD, um, who's worked a lot in cancer care. And um, I think she was talking about the timing of giving carnitine for CIPN in, in in certain drugs that you don't give it during the chemo, you give it afterwards. If you give it during the chemo, it worsens their CIPN.
1: I think what she's referring to is this study of um, the... Acetyl L-carnitine was actually used in this study, and it was a a good study. It was a double-blind, placebo-controlled study, and these were women who were getting taxane chemotherapy. And when they were concurrently getting acetyl L-carnitine, they actually had much greater rates of um, nerve damage. Right. And so I'm not sure about the timing. I mean, generally speaking, it's given concurrently with chemotherapy, like with the or cisplatin or uh, carboplatin. you, you just sort of take it throughout the whole course of that chemotherapy and there's a reduction in neuropathy. Right, physically.
0: right. So you wait till after the full cycles have of taxanes have been given and then you would start. ALC, right. ALCAR. Is that right?
1: Oh, I see. Yeah. So maybe that's the timing she was referring to. Yeah. So after, so if you want to try using it to reduce the neuropathy for taxines, which it may or may not, then you would definitely want to wait until the taxing is out of the system, not coming back in yeah. and I, then try it.
0: I think one of the other things that came out of Janet Schloss's research was in those ladies on, I think it was Paclitaxel, that it May be worthwhile, at, you know. Certainly, looking at their history and seeing if they're at risk of B12 deficiency, and potentially even testing mm-hmm. for transcobalamin and B12 levels to make sure that they've got enough, because they actually had they were able to rescue somebody's CIPN to a certain degree, which was like to me, it's a groundbreaking mm-hmm. thing. This a simple yeah. vitamin that yeah. can rescue yeah, no, that's therapy. Great. Yeah. and therefore the lady can have the taxane, and and therefore the lady can um, get the benefits of the chemotherapy.
1: Right, especially since maybe the other options are more limited. Mm. Um, You know, and another thing just to think about with carnitine, going back to that for a moment, is that um, I think it's important that we don't pigeonhole these nutrients into one effect. You know, one of the reasons why acetyl l carnitine in particular, or carnitine in general, uh, is so much a part of my recommendations is because, yes, it helps to prevent neurotoxicity, but it also is very helpful in preventing cardiotoxicity, yes. specifically with things like um, and even I think aromatase inhibitors and herceptin, um, and it uh, is also very good for fatigue, just general muscle fatigue, so really helpful for radiation. So you've got anytime you know there's a nutrient that has all those different effects, I think it's something we should really consider.
0: What about things nutraceuticals like diindolylmethane? Do you have issues at during any chemo with DIM?
1: I don't, and I'm just hesitating a moment because it's also something I don't go to a lot right up front with uh, chemotherapy. So typically, you know that that's working to um, modify estrogen metabolism yeah. towards its less least carcinogenic metabolites, but it also has been shown to have a very specific immune effect and it helps to reduce some of the immunosuppression around tumors and to stimulate uh, tumor lymphocyte infiltration. So it, it has kind of a specific immune effect as well. Um, so and you, it works on...
0: So we do use it either side of chemo?
1: Yes, and it works on relieving fatty liver. And so those are all things that kind of are more important long-term, yep. number one, and really after chemo is done. Yep. So I tend to kind of put that on board after the course of chemo is complete.
2: Yeah.
0: One thing that's come up with me recently is the use of melatonin, in particularly in things like glioblastoma multiforme, and particularly in an age group commonly affected by that, and that is kids. Now, can I ask, how do you use melatonin And what issues do you find with it or what sort of, you know, cautions do you have around its use? Uh,
1: So I use melatonin a lot because, quite frankly, it's one of the best evidence-based natural therapies in oncology from a natural perspective, Um, hundreds of clinical trials. And, you know, the, the results are just almost uniformly consistent in terms of reducing the side effect profile from chemotherapy and radiation by about 50% typically, and, you know, improving overall survival anywhere from 30 to 50%, so clear benefit. Um, That being said, uh, there are some times where it doesn't seem to be the right thing for somebody, so there's a certain percentage, maybe 10% or so of people who take melatonin that have a paradoxical reaction to it, so instead of getting sleepy, they get really wired. And you can't really give, you know, you think, well, gosh, okay, then take it in the morning, but they just get sleepy in the morning. (laughs) So it just doesn't really seem to work in those people. Sometimes you can kind of work them up, do a good dose, but the dose in the the clinical literature for the most part is 20 milligrams of melatonin. And so you're really looking at almost a pharmacological dose of melatonin. And there's been some really nice articles that differentiate the physiological effects of melatonin, so what happens when we have just our own endogenous levels versus the pharmacological effects. And they're a bit different. Like, for example, just a really quick example is a physiological level of melatonin tends to help cells pause in their cycle of division to do some repair, whereas a pharmacological dose will help to kind of push the cell into apoptosis. Uh, or suicide. So there's, there's definitely a differential effect at that dose. Um, so I, you know, tend to use it more often than not with kids. Um, generally speaking, I wouldn't use it as a sleep aid for a child that does not have cancer. Cause I think there's lots of other yeah. more, you know, safe things to use because yeah. kids can have, you know, adverse reactions to melatonin, but for a child with a brain tumor, Um, I would definitely use it because there's, uh, you know, reason to think it should be helpful and there's a lot, you know, they don't have much to lose by trying it basically. So
0: what about probiotics? Um, Now there has been some issues with Saccharomyces boulardii, haven't there?
1: Yeah. So probiotics are interesting too. They're, um, you know, of course there's the issue of, of normal healthy, so-called healthy or commensal bacteria in a, and somebody who has an intact intestinal system, no extraneous devices in their vasculature, not, you know, those, those they are healthy bacteria and putting a bunch more in the gut is not going to be an issue. But uh, for people who have chemotherapy, one of the almost universal side effects of chemotherapy is to increase uh, hyperpermeability of the gut or to cause GI leakiness. And with that leakiness, you're going to get some of these bacterial fragments into the blood, which... Even as a commensal bacteria are going to initiate immune response. Now, this is kind of interesting because some people think that's actually part of how chemo works. Is that the gut gets leaky, these bacteria come through, they stimulate immunity, and that immunity is then kind of heightened and is able to right. attack tumor cells right. more effectively. Yeah. Uh, and the flip side of that is if somebody's really deficient in their white count, and so their you know white count is below normal, then there are reported cases of septicemia, even from commensal bacteria. Yeah. So I kind of use as a general rule of thumb, if somebody's white count is within normal range, then I'm fine using probiotics. But if they're below normal, then I hold it. And I don't think it's you know wise.
0: What about the use of probiotics like, for instance, um, I, I think especially Saccharomyces boulardii, when people have got a, a central line?
1: Yeah, so I think there's been some reports of some some uh, fungemia from that um, saccharomyces in people with ports. I don't really know why that is exactly because you know where is it coming from? Like I mean, the ports are just generally a, you have to be so careful with ports. Yeah, because they just can be these reservoirs of infection and. Let's get stuck to them, carry stuff around.
0: They just have to be taken care of so carefully. Yeah. So you're right. I mean, that's the reports that I've read were, um, you know, the well-meaning nurse um, was apparently giving the Saccharomyces boulardii, theoretically got some of the product on her fingertips, then went to clean the central line. And ended up inadvertently mm. um, causing a portal of entry, basically for the organism, and therefore fungemia. I, I think the the patients that I've read were all rescued with amphotericin, but notwithstanding, that's a very serious thing, and you should be avoiding it. And you should be absolutely fastidious with central lines. <laughs> but I think the big mm-hmm. thing is,
2: you know,
0: that, you know, unless you are that,
1: uh,
2: uh,
0: you know, you've got to be really, really careful with um, SB. Yeah,
1: and I think that that point is so important. I've actually had. Um, I had a patient who was getting some intravenous vitamin C therapy during their chemotherapy and was going to another practitioner to get the IV vitamin C, and the other practitioner didn't was cleaning was flushing the port, but the uh, hygienics around the office wasn't good enough, and yep. she had actually introduced an infection. Yeah.
2: yeah. So
1: it's I mean people have to just guard their ports like a you know rabid dog.
0: Absolutely. <laughs>
1: Basically, make sure that it's they're being flushed. Properly, everything's super
0: hygienic. Yeah, we're yep. yep, better than everything. <laughs> Lisa, any other sort of general hints and tips? I, I guess one of the closing things for me is when you're looking at, or when you're avoiding certain supplements because there is a real issue. For instance, like you can't use St. John's Wort because that is a, a, a well-known, well-documented issue what sort of things can you use if somebody has, if somebody's suffering from anxiety, which of course is a big ongoing issue for people journeying through their cancer and even thriving afterwards, they have this ongoing, you know, anxiety about what's going to happen now. So where do you sit? What do you tend to use?
1: Well, um, so for example, in that situation, I would think about lavender extract, um, which has been shown to not have clinically significant interactions in human studies Mm -hmm. and is a very reliable anxiolytic. Um, You know, for depression, I think going the amino acid route can be quite helpful. So either assessing for amino acid deficiencies and repleting those or looking at, you know, simple things like magnesium or B6 deficiency uh, can be very helpful as well. Um, you know amino acids are a little tricky too there's uh like for example fam e which we know is a great antidepressant um i mean really quite miraculous for some people uh, is also a source of methionine which is an angiogenic factor and they're is there are even some trials which are looking at can we restrict methionine from the diet and use that as a means to control tumor growth. Yeah. So that would maybe be something not to use, unfortunately,
2: mm.
1: in somebody who has active tumors. But somebody who has no evidence of disease, I'm fine with using it. Yeah. Um, so I think we just have to be thoughtful and you know really think about anything that we're using. Okay, so is there any data on this sort of feeding or spurring cancer growth is this data human data is it just you know cell based data is it theoretical um, and then you know how long am I going to have somebody on this are there any other alternatives and just kind of really go through a very almost a mental checklist with every item to try to be as safe as we can
0: yeah and I, I guess the last point for me to make is because there is more and more research coming out about nutri- concurrent nutrients with chemo and radiotherapy um I think what we need from you, Lise, is a new version, a new edition of The Definitive Guide to Cancer. (laughs) Because I've got to say, I found particularly that middle section of the book, I found that so especially useful to just look up as a reference to go, that's it, that's what I need to do, bang. Um, And thank you for taking us through the real issues of the dangers of supplementation today in FX Medicine.
1: Well, thank you very much. And I'll work on that addition. It's a little overwhelming because there's so many new drugs approved, like almost on a daily basis. Yeah. I don't even know how I would maintain my sanity. So if you're willing to have crazy, you know, no longer staying, no longer with us, least, then maybe I'll do it. <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> this is
1: FX Medicine.
0: I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast was brought to you by Bioceuticals. The
2: Dr. Lee's Alshula Seminar Series.